such beauty. We so need it. We so need it. Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show, a breathtaking one, if I may say, because we're going to be dealing with a subject that we deal with routinely around here at A Better World because we have to, and that is taking a good, hard, searing look at what we have done to our beautiful planet, to our beautiful habitat, our beautiful environment. So to do this, I have invited a dear friend and colleague of mine, Richard Schiffman, who has been on these airwaves before with me discussing the disappearance, actually, of bees, which, needless to say, is part and parcel of the damage that is being wrought on our environment and on our ecosystem. Bees are such an important part, an integral part, of keeping our food supply alive and uh, helps with all manner of keeping many different species alive, not just the human one. And Richard has written rather extensively about that. Uh, Just a bit more about Richard. He is an environmental journalist. He's a writer at large, but he's been writing environmental articles for the New York Times, Salon, the Washington Post, uh, Christian Science Monitor, Huffington Post. He's been on NPR and uh, other radio stations, including this, A Better World. He's been at this for many years. He's also got a very interesting background in writing about and dealing with some of the mystical traditions of our planet, as well, especially from India, about which he's written a book about one of his gurus there, uh, a very special mother. And uh, we may touch upon that as well, because everything is integrated in our worldview here at A Better World. It has to be. It's a systems way of thinking, where one thing influences another. And we understand that according to uh, quantum physics, that this is a very real thing. We call it the butterfly effect. So the way we think and the way we feel and the way we act is somehow or another, even if somewhat minimally in many cases, influencing the world at large, both inwardly and outwardly. So when you come from that point of view, everything matters. Everything matters. So with that idea as the platform, we're going to kind of launch into a conversation about one, what have we done, and take a look at some of the data and some of the reality of what we've done to our beautiful, beautiful planet as a collective, historically, and most of all, currently. And then we're going to do what is most important, which is to take a good, hard look at solutions that are staring at us in the face right now as we speak. And many, many, many people, despite appearances, despite the newscasts, despite media, conventional media, mainstream media, a huge amount of effort is being made in organizations of all sorts, social enterprise, nonprofits, NGOs across the planet to bring health, well-being, soil cultivation, sequestering of carbon, and the like, so that we may actually get through 
what is a very challenging time. So on that note, Richard Schiffman, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Hello, Mitchell. A pleasure to be here. And and uh, Mitchell didn't mention that he's one of the guys who's working on the solutions, and I, I hope you uh, tell us a little bit about some of your projects. Sure, well. sure, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you know, if you take something on, Richard, such as the name Better World, both of the radio and community TV shows, as well as my organization itself, I better do something about the environment, <laughs> you know, have to do with personal <laughs> health as well as environmental, otherwise I don't know what I'm doing, you know, so. You're doing but, great Richard, work, Mitchell. Thanks. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. You know, and talking about great work, you are helping to bring also to the foreground so much uh, of what's going on, and you've been going to all corners of the planet to report on, you know, from South uh, South America and elsewhere to let us know about what's going on in some of these intimate places like the Amazon rainforest and what's happening with ecosystems. What do you think that we, uh, our audience, should know about most uh, saliently about what it is you've observed as an environmental journalist? Well, that's that's kind of a big question. I, I mean, obviously, climate change is a very big deal, right? It's, uh, yeah. you know, a few years ago when I started writing about the environment, we talked about uh, the the future. You know, climate change was something in the future. Well, that's not yeah. the case anymore. We're all we're all seeing the effects. Uh, I mean, we've had several of the hottest years on record in the last decade. It seems like every year is hotter than the last, and yeah. uh, we don't even have to talk about the, uh, the hurricanes, the, the increase in tornadoes, the wildfires that are happening in California today as we speak, which are uh, yeah. created uh, to a large extent by the drying of and, and heating up of the climate. So mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing climate change big time. And so I think that's sort of the big difference from when I started writing and we had to talk about, uh, you know, potential future effects. Well, nobody writes that way or talks that way anymore. We're seeing it all around us. Yes, exactly. It's really true. It used to be more hypothetical. And it's sort of one of those funny things, Richard, because uh, it's sort of like oxygen in the air. You can't see it, but you know it's there. And of course, you know, through observation using technology, i.e. microscopes, we know for sure it's there. But unfortunately, um, people are not using that level of inference. So they have this notion from Missouri, if I can't see it, it don't exist. <laughs> you know, show me. Right. Well, yeah, if you have keen enough eyes, if you use the right technology, if you know a little arithmetic, you can pretty much figure out if you put this amount of 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 uh, nitrous oxide into the air over the period of 150 to 200 years at this rate. What is going to happen? Let's see now, class. Let's take a look. You know, what if we put exactly. this amount of yeah. arsenic into the air? You know, right? Sure. You're going to have problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there's a good example of like a few years ago, I would write uh, about a hurricane, let's say that uh, 
that it might have been uh, it, that global warming, climate change, might have been one factor in creating this hurricane. Well, now the scientists have models where they're able to say, like exactly how much impact climate change has had on the likelihood of, of a particular weather event happening. So we no longer have uh, environmental reporters writing, well, this might have this might have been caused by climate change. We now have algorithms and mathematical ways of determining exactly how much of an impact climate change has had on different weather oh, events. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So things- I, I Just for the sake of clarification, I'm – I'm going to, you know, be a little um, hard-lined. I, you know, I'm a hard-liner, right? <laughs> so oh, that's be, right. Yeah. I just make the, uh, <laughs> you know that well. Yeah. Uh, a distinction between climate change, which is really, in many ways, a, uh, a natural phenomenon, and this thing that we refer to as, you know, global warming um, as a result of what we refer to as greenhouse gases that have accumulated, uh, such as CO2 in excess, uh, and God, there are approximately 41 others uh, that all contribute in confluence to this thing we call greenhouse gases, and then our next phrase is global warming, whereas, and this is just the way I kind of frame it, and I've gotten this from a few different sources, including Paul Hawken, who's truly one of my heroes, Uh, and when you talk about global warming, it's something that you can very much kind of, there's a way to control it. It doesn't look that way at times, but we can manage uh, sequestration, and we can manage carbon and the other gas output. Climate change is, whoa, you have to have a long conversation with Mother Earth and Gaia in order to say, hey, look, you know, I sort of like Miami to be at around 88, and if you wouldn't mind leaving it there, we'd appreciate it. Right. Yeah, well, so I mean, uh, climate change, uh, it, it's the kind of conventional term, but, but you're right, it, it lends itself to people arguing and saying, well, the climate's always changed. Well, that's true, but we know uh, the climate has never changed as quickly as it has in the last uh, 30, 40 years. And we know exactly why that's happening. We know why that's happening. So, you know, I, I mean, I even have friends who will say, oh, the climate is always changing. And I'll say, yeah, but not like it is today. And, mm-hmm. you know, the be- the best scientific evidence is that we are actually, in terms of natural climate cycles, we talked about this the other day, that we're actually yes. in a cooling cycle. That if it wasn't for the fact yes. that humans were pushing, you know, with, with the greenhouse gases pushing this heating trend, that uh, the climate would actually be getting cooler now. So it just shows how exactly. extreme yep. that human effect is that we're able to override, I mean, you, you know, usually override this natural cooling effect that would be happening otherwise. Yes, yes. And that's all the more reason why I like to make the really hard line distinction between climate change, which is always happening. It's a function of our universe and our our nature, literally, um, and what we call uh, the anthropogenic aspect of it, which is this massive, uh, unethical, <laughs> um, inappropriate, out of balance, Kayana Squatsy, Philip Glass style, imbalance 
that we're facing that has to do with the Industrial Revolution and, you know, cars and trucks and trains and submarines and exploitation of oil by digging in the earth and the exploitation of minerals, on and on and on. So all of these actions have generated uh, just a spoilage of the environment and of the air and the water and the soil to the extent that we have this thing, this very massive problem. It's like having uh, any a tumor that's actually almost larger than the body itself, you know, that we really kind of are best calling, I think, uh, global warming. And uh, that way, I mean, again, uh, if we talk about sequestration, Richard, and we talk about a carbon-neutral activity, uh, even a manufacturing activity, then we're talking about a different kind of world. We're talking about being responsible for our output, if I will, for our elimination. And, uh, you know, that changes everything. Zero waste is the idea that's come up that is inherent in nature, by the way, needless to say. And the uprise, the upsurge, I should say, of, of this idea of biomimicry, i.e., mimicking nature, um, is gained in tremendous popularity in, ter- in architecture, in engineering. It's utterly fascinating. Even in cybersecurity, uh, I'm part of a, an effort in a company that uses the, essentially the behavior of ants and swarming to describe the way this technology protects a network, which is like protecting, you know, an anthill or a beehive, you know, in the queen bee. Kind of interesting. I, right? I, I think we have a lot to learn from ants and bees, but, but we're kind of too stupid to take the, the hints, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. humans, we, we, we humans think we know everything, but if we pay attention to nature and, and to uh, our fellow beings, I think there's a lot to learn. You know, you mentioned carbon sequestration, so I don't know if all our listeners will know what that is, but actually there are techniques that have been developed. I, I interviewed a Columbia professor, Klaus Lochner, some years ago about uh, building, art, he called them artificial trees, and they basically chemically bind with carbon dioxide, take it out of the air, and uh, you know the idea was to take that carbon dioxide and pump it under the earth. So you could actually take out some yeah. of the greenhouse gases that we're putting into the air. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that's we already know how to do that. However, there's a, and, and this however is kind of a big however. Uh, it costs money, and so who's going to pay for it? Now, it doesn't cost that much in terms of, uh, you know, we were talking the other day about basically if you built the same number of these trees as we were currently building, say, SUV vehicles, you could make a big impact on on taking the uh, carbon dioxide out of the air. However, mm. that, that's going to cost money, so who's going to pay for it? That's the question. Who's going to pay for it? And, uh, I mean, you know, we can sit here and say, well, we should pay for it. Of course we should pay for it because it's penny-wise and, and pound-foolish to not do that because basically if we allow 
this warming trend to continue, we're going to be paying a lot more in terms of disaster, uh, you know, uh, weather disasters. Yeah, disaster management, uh, right? Health Emergency medicine, disaster management. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so the 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 thing is, okay, so it it would be wise to do this, but still, nobody, I mean, no company uh, is going to do this on their own. It needs to be something that that governments do, or or collectively governments do, and it's it's yeah. totally doable. But but the the problem, I mean, the problem is not called the problem is political at this stage. Yes well put and that's really dangerous area <clears throat> and very oh thin God. ice and because right. of global warming the ice is getting even thinner <laughs> um, but before going before doing a nose dive into that murky water uh, what about that tree that you described that you told me about um, now is it of greater economic benefit or or ecological expediency to have those kinds of trees right what are they how do you describe them as robotic well he, he, he calls yeah i mean he called them artificial trees they're, they're not really artificial. trees they're they're structures that have uh, a chemical impregnated in their blades that captures carbon dioxide and then the carbon dioxide can be easily released with water so it's it's a you know fairly simple yes. chemical process but then there's also the question of so what do you do with all the carbon dioxide you obviously don't want to release it back into the atmosphere so uh there are methods sure. of pumping it under the earth these two i mean they cost money they don't come for free, uh, but they just take the political will to do that. I mean, there, there have already been tests that show that it's possible. You can, like, pump this carbon dioxide into geological formations underground, and it can stay there, you know, basically for half yes. a million years yes. or whatever. Yes, but, yes, But, you know, And it's that's not a not, bad idea has, for it to eventually surface over time in a gradual way. I, I'm I'm just imagining that. I don't know that scientifically. But that's one of the problems that there has been this excess over the course, if you think of the Earth as many billions of years old, and then in a period of 200 years, there is this extraordinary change in the atmosphere and the oceans because of this excess you know oh my god you know this is tumultuous but if, right, exactly. when things are gradual I mean, I mean, in case, there's a dilution aspect to it yeah yeah uh just in case some of our listeners don't know the connection to the ocean so carbon dioxide mixes with ocean water and makes it more acidic so yes acidifying the ocean has some really bad effects including uh killing off the microorganisms that the other creatures in the ocean depend on uh there's evidence that the the plankton the phytoplankton that uh thrive in the ocean will have a much harder time in an acidic ocean 
but that's already happening, and and also coral, coral reefs. reefs. I mean, we've well. we've seen yeah. we've seen some of the impact of coral reefs. Coral reefs are even more strongly impacted by rising temperatures. So mm-hmm. uh, a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, we saw the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which is the largest reef in the world. Uh, something like half of it was bleached. Literally in yes. a month or two. So bleaching doesn't mean necessarily that all the coral die, but many of them do. So and, and so coral reefs are unsustainable in the the kind of world that, that <laughs> that's developing. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I've seen a lot some of that of video footage. Yeah, I've seen some of the video footage of the Australian reefs, the great coral reefs there, and it's just. It just makes you cry. It just makes you cry because coral reefs also happen to be one of the most magnificent, most beautiful things this our oceans have to offer. You know, our planet has to offer, it. and to see it shriveled and and blanched and and sort of dead, lifeless, is enough to just it just you know it's just crazy. But let me go right. back to uh, the point you were making about the artificial trees because I want to. In your understanding from your interview with Klaus, was it more productive from a point of view of sequestration? Um, that is, as Richard you know, made the point, uh, <clears throat> gathering of CO2 more than your rank-and-file tree? Well, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I... Uh, I think that probably one of the artificial trees would would probably sequester more carbon than a typical tree. However, that's a good point. I mean, planting trees also sequesters carbon. How does it do that? Well, the, uh, that's what plants do. They take the um, yeah, you know, they take, they take carbon our, di- carbon out of the air. Our and they, exhalation they of CO2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so that's another that's another approach Soil is too, re- reforestation. Yeah. What's that? Uh, I said yeah. soil does the same. Soil sequesters. Right. And right. Uh, right. oceans so there are, actually there are, sequester. Yeah. Yeah, so there are na- there are natural ways to do this as as well. Uh and well, you know, they they all require human effort and they cost money. Uh, and it's just a, it's sort of a tactical question. So w- which one do we choose? And that, you know, that c- kind of choice would be made based on evidence of what's the most efficient and most cost-effective way of doing that. But again, the problem, right, is the political will. Do we? We don't appear to have that political will to take these steps. Yes. That's right. That's right. Exactly. But but as you kind of review the various, you know, uh, articles that you've written for these major publications, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, Huffington Post, etc., Christian Science Monitor, do you see a trend in interest in solutions and the effort? to establish a political will? But first of all, the first part of the question, do you see an interest in solutions from an increasing number of readers? And are those readers uh, government officials or are they corporatists 
you know, corporation management, uh, or are they just uh, people on the on the green on the ground on in the street? Well, do you have any uh, any think, measure uh, of that? Any metric? I think it's kind of polarized, like the rest of our politics. I think I mentioned to you the other day about uh, you know I, I had written uh, an article for the Atlantic after one of the. UN, the UN comes out with periodic reports on uh, sure. global warming and climate change, and uh, so I had uh, surveyed, you know, some of the major climate scientists in the world about their thoughts about that, and basically, you know, there's just about unanimity among climate scientists. They know what's happening. They know that uh, the climate's changing very quickly, and. Uh, so I that, I never received as many negative comments to an article as as that piece that was published in the Atlantic. I mean, there were literally thousands of comments. As I you know, I told you the other day, I think they were they were kind of orchestrated by these right wing groups that like to make oh. it look like there's a lot of uh, a lot of objection to climate change. A lot of so I don't think it necessarily right? reflected. Yeah, you know they. I don't Reality. think it reflected like the public view, but but I would say this. I mean, I don't think that the, that people are really uh, that mobilized about this. I mean, there are some, and and you and I. I mean, did were you in the climate march a few years ago, um, yes. or, or were you reporting on it? I mean, I I, I were both, both there, both yeah. yeah. And, I was with uh, Good News Planet, Paul Slakis, my friend David Katzmeyer, and we were uh, taking up the tale. <laughs> right. Well, see, see, I didn't, I didn't see. I didn't see you, Mitchell. And the reason I didn't really? see you there is that I think there were about a half a million other people exactly. <laughs> in the line. Uh, you know, I was at so, the end, and you were so at the, the front. <laughs> oh well, I don't know where. I don't, yeah, I, I was. I was. Somewhere in there, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> but, so uh, funny, but Bernie and I, you know, your friend Bernie. So, uh, sure. Bernie Stone. So, so like there is a segment. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are worked up about this, but but I don't think it's like it's not the majority, and it's not a, an issue that you know kind of leads the political debate at all, right? Exactly. So that's you the just problem. kind of brought a funny image to mind, though. If we have like eight or nine million people living in New York City overall, can you imagine if all of us were in the street? Who would be who would be on the sidelines cheering us on if we were all marching? <laughs> anyway, well, all of us are in the street every day, but <laughs> that's true. Another story. It's true. Yeah, it's well, true. it felt like that. I tell you, it, it felt like that. It was. It did. It, you know, I, I think these these marches there. They're incredibly encouraging, and you feel like the world is with you. But then you have elections, you know, like we've had a few recently that have been a little dispiriting. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and you wonder, well, where is that all that energy and all that? Well, uh, yeah. you know, we're usually divided, and we're divided about everything, including the environment. And the environment yes, just exactly. hasn't risen to that level of... Uh, like a major concern for most people. I mean, unfortunately, because it should be, obviously. But Yeah, you just... know, everything, our world has become a political football, Richard. And if, you know, you don't have the right 
pigskin, you know, you're not going to get the attention of people that have increasingly shorter uh, attention spans altogether. So you have to be careful of the pigskin. And if you're kosher (laughs) or halal, (laughs) it's kind of difficult to play that game. Or if you simply don't right. like pig, you know, I'm, 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 I'm being a little playful here. But, you know, the thing is this, uh, when you really look at and examine what we need as a society, and here we are considered one of the most advanced civilizations on the planet, let's just say here in the U.S. of A., right, yet. We see our infrastructure utterly, completely falling apart because there has been so little serious money invested on a state level or on a federal level in at least 50 years. Oh, yes, a couple of little patches here and there. Oh, for sure. But they're patches. They're not systemic. They're not uh, major. And... As a result, we have an infrastructure falling apart. But how many politicians are out there saying, we're going to rebuild infrastructure, yay! No, instead, they'd rather talk about immigrants and invasions and our borders and uh, making America great again and all of this just rhetoric and polemic and propaganda and rah-rah like we're all in some huge football game. This is not a football game, my friends. This is reality, and we need infrastructure, and we need education, and we need a real health care, health um, and health support system is the way I would rather think about it. Wellness and health support rather than, you know, catching people in their last stages of life and, you know, where it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring them back from the jaws of death. That's not a wellness system. That's not even a health care system. That's madness. And it costs billions and trillions of dollars. So when you have an environment, no pun intended, like this, Richard, and we look around, how in the world is something that we don't see that well called pollution of our air uh, going to get its proper fair shake in the uh, in the political landscape, right. Well, I mean, the the good news here, at least in terms of the environment, is that Europe and even my God, China are are, are way ahead of us in terms of implementing some of these technologies that we're going to need to slow down the uh, progress of of the warming yes. that's happening in in the climate. So. You know, the what US... have you come across? I mean, I know what you're saying to be true directly from my experience and travel and knowledge, but what is it that you see as a journalist in regard to Europe and uh, parts of uh, China? Well, for example, in terms of solar power, which is the most elegant and perfect solution to the fossil fuel problem, right? We have the sun. It's free. Yes. We can use that. So in, in terms of solar power, just about all of Europe is ahead of us, including Germany. Now, go figure. Oh Germany is not like, is not like Germany the sun. Germany is advanced. Uh, not a sunny place, particularly. And yet, they've 
they've put in more solar capacity than uh you know many similar areas in in the US for sure and China is a major producer of so, solar panels they're, they're invested in it highly the, the biggest, now why the, why the is biggest. that so i don't think it's you know because they're necessarily uh so altruistic in China i think it's it's more just that they they know that they can't continue to pollute the air in Beijing and in the big cities of China it's become a life or death situation so they're they're being forced to go toward these alternative energy sources. Now, the one thing is, I mean, in the U.S., like wind power is really thriving. Even in places like Texas, believe it or not, wind power is producing electricity cheaper in Texas than fossil fuels. You know, and and what state is producing more fossil fuels than the oil fields of Texas? So That's right. You know, these... These exactly. things eventually, I think, the market, eventually yeah. I think the market's going to uh, just take over and alternative energies are going to uh, prevail. But the thing is we don't really have the time for that. You know, it's like things are developing so quickly that, that governments also have to act at this stage. And as yeah. I say, they are acting to a certain extent in Europe and, and, and China and other places uh, more than we are here. So that's a, well, I've a got little to tell you. Of hope. <laughs> yes, exactly. First of all, let's just let everybody know you are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., but I know you listen in your own sweet time, which is fine. And you can find us, of course, on uh, abetterworld.tv under Radio Archive or uh, directly at Blog Talk Radio. So come and join any time you'd like. It's just with us, as well as you can get our free newsletter at betterworld.tv. It comes out about once a week announcing uh, what the content of the shows will be, or if I have guests like tonight with uh, my dear friend and colleague Richard Schiffman. <clears throat> and uh, we're on television in New York City in Manhattan every Monday evening at 7 p.m. However, if you happen not to live in Manhattan, and we have, I know, people living in Japan and India and China, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, Australia, South Africa, UK, Mexico, from people from all over, you can just go to a betterworld.tv and click in the upper right-hand corner where it says click to watch, and then there will be another click or two, and voila. You're in. Go there a few minutes before 7 o'clock Eastern Standard or Daylight Time, and uh, you'll be there on Monday. So uh, we've got a lot to offer, and we love your being part of a better world community and family. So with that well, I hope said, I'm going to go. I, I hope you're not filming me, Mitchell, because I'm in my long johns now. <laughs> we've got a beautiful image of you, Richard Schiffman. <laughs> <laughs> the weather is the, the temperature is dropping rapidly here in New York City. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's so yeah. funny. We are speaking with the environmental journalist Richard Schiffman, who has been on our air before. He is a dear friend of mine and colleague, and we have 
very much taken uh, the issues around global warming and climate change very seriously. You know, I like to back up the conversation quite honestly, Richard, to just talking about pollution because there are these people they we call them climate i mean i'm very sensitive as a wordsmith to language so this idea of climate deniers deniers there's not a climate no i deny that there's a climate i mean what kind of nonsense is this or others say i believe in climate change so all of a sudden it's been made into a religion i believe in christ and i believe in climate change no 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 <laughs> there's science <laughs> there's science and do we accept some of the research that scientists have done? Well, I think that wouldn't be a bad idea, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> especially right. if they're not and science, corporatized. Science is just another name for, science is, is just another name for evidence. You know, I mean, like some people have there attitudes about That's science, right. you know. Oh, well, there, right. you know, science is, is trying to pull a number on us. But uh, no, actually not. You know, I mean, uh, if you just talk about it as evidence and facts, I mean, I think the facts and the evidence are overwhelming and they're clear. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, well, we haven't really gotten into this subject and it's a big one, but we, we, we kind of live in a post-fact world, right? Where people not <laughs> yeah. only don't don't have trust in the facts that science is uncovering, but you know you have somebody in the White House who uh, I don't think a truthful word. You know, I mean, occasionally it might slip through, but uh, but that's so occasionally that we don't even need to mention it, right? You know, so yeah, uh, <laughs> it's too infrequent. Yeah, yeah, you're you're making a very good point. I every single day when I listen or watch uh, mainstream news, which is so toxic oftentimes, um, <clears throat> that I think, how can they actually, how can these newscasters actually take anything seriously that this guy says? And I mean, it's like, it's like they don't get it. It's like they all have amnesia from one day to the other. One day, every single day, he lies more than he lied the day before. And they take his word as though what he's saying is actually credible or meaningful. So it's like they're getting slapped in the face every day and say, do you believe what the president said? No, I don't think I do. Well, of course you don't, and of course you shouldn't, because all he does is lie, and someone at the New York Times has been tallying the lies every single day from the day he got into office and said it was the largest inauguration crowd ever to be seen in U.S. history. I mean, you know. Right. Well, I was about to say, I was about to say, Mitchell, I I mean, what you say about the mainstream media, uh, I think is true to a certain extent, but, you know, as somebody who uh, has dabbled in, in, publishing in the mainstream media i would say that actually there's there's a lot of Dabble very like heroic that. people and you know journalists at the times yes. and other places who are pointing out you know these lies i mean the times did a whole list oh, of the lies once that i know that's what i was just saying just, I, they, yeah yeah exactly so 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 i think you no, know it's, it's true, sort of it's, true. it's, it's energized all... the media to an extent uh to resist because and and you know the the media is sort of like uh the finger in the dike of untruth to a certain extent you know it is uh, i know 
we rely on it. I think that the Washington Post and the New York Times are a bit more heroic than anything I see on the cable news like MSNBC and CNN. And I mean, they ha- it's not that they don't have some truth based. They do. I'm not saying it's not truth based, but I find myself offended, Richard, by the way they define the conversation and the way they frame it. And it's within the most narrow parameters. And it's a win-lose proposition. And it's always about the White House and Trump. And it's rarely about what else in the world is going on, such as global warming. And they just touch on it in the most peripheral way. Could you comment on that? Because you are in the middle of so much of it. Right. Well, uh, uh, I don't even I don't watch TV news anymore <laughs> for that reason. You know. Yes. Uh, I think a lot of it is just very reactive, and of uh, and um, you know, I, I think that at least the print media uh, has more of a chance to analyze and and get into depth. I mean, I, I actually used yes, to be I a radio agree. journalist. Yep. I've I've never done TV journalism, but. I found even in radio journalism that you know you have three minutes or something for a complicated story, and uh, inevitably you know say it's on something that Trump said. So inevitably you report, well Trump said this, and and then uh, but on the other hand, uh, <laughs> you know yeah, right. uh, that right, that's right. not true. Uh, but still it gives like st- still Trump's in there, right? You know, and and so. The thing with uh, with other forms of media like newspapers and even more so magazines, you know, investigative reporting in magazines like The New Yorker, there's there's a real chance to go into depth about subjects. And so I think that's, you know, if there's a problem with TV news, it's mainly just that they don't have the uh, bandwidth and the time to go into these issues the way that they need that we need to. Yeah, so, I think that's uh, a very good, and that's a that's a fair point. The other thing that we need to continue to remind ourselves of is that it's all economically driven. There used to be a time back in the day, uh, back in the 40s, 50s, that uh, the newsrooms were not part of the entertainment department. But they did get moved to the entertainment department. And, uh, you know, so Walter Cronkite had to have makeup put on, you know, just, to, you know, as a metaphor. And right, it's very sad right. because they're they're dancing to a different tune these days, and it's all about ratings. Someone I heard Richard said, asked Chris Hayes about why he did not do more coverage of global warming. And he said, it's simple. The ratings suck. And right. that's why well, I mean, we you know, cover that's, Trump nonstop. That's, that's, yeah, that's the reality. And that's also, money. like we were talking before about, uh, are people really ener- energized about the environment? Well, not really. You know, I mean, it, it's, uh, and, and when people are, are not really energized about it, then it falls a little bit off the radar of the media. I mean, even, uh, you know, even places like you mentioned the New York Times and the Washington Post. Well, they have you know pretty decent environmental coverage, but they're also, yes. you know, in today's world, they also have to look at page views and, and what are people interested in, and and uh, you know, it's 
in a way, it's not really their fault if they're not covering these things as intensively as they should be covered. It's sort of our fault because we're just not, you know, people are just not interested enough uh, well, or engaged enough very in interesting these points. That raises a very interesting point. Are newspaper and are the media supposed to be covering just what interests people, or are they supposed to be covering what is important to our very survival and find a way to interest people in that? You see, because if we just follow the bouncing ball of what interests people, let's say that happens to be fashion, or that happens to be video games, or that happens to be celebrities. Well, the the New York Times, you know, um, the hallowed New York Times is all of a sudden going to be talking about, you know, this celebrity who married who and who divorced who. I mean, you know, we we yeah. can't well, just I, I, follow I mean, you what know, interests I'm, people, or we need to change our educational system so people educated about real human and ethical and environmental values. Your comments? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I've written for the Times quite a bit, and God bless them. You know, I'm able to do subjects that the just just about nobody else would would be interested in, yes. and they don't demand Fantastic. they don't demand that every every single article be uh, you know get a million page views or whatever. Uh, they have the the uh, you, you know the they're successful enough to be able to cover things. They have the latitude, yeah. right. They have the, the yeah, girth well. to allow yeah, some exactly. will get a million yeah. and some will get 100,000 right. and some may get 10,000, but it's all part of a whole. That's a very good point, right. and I, I very much appreciate it. It's a, a level of, uh, yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're, uh, a point was made to me recently by a, uh, CEO of a company that is so interesting. It uses premonition and intuition and precognition as means of reading the marketplace and making investments. This happens to be, uh, you know, they do something with with stocks and investments. So uh, the CEO uh, found that he had this gift as a child and then studied it more and more and, and cultivated that skill. And um, he was saying to me that, you know, his portfolio is based on intuition, which is fascinating, you know. But he said that no longer is he – he's got some kind of uh, podcast as well. And he was saying he's no longer interested just in uh, kind of facts and standard journalism. He wants to tell stories, human interest stories. He wants to get the truth out about what's going on on our planet on many, many, many levels. But he has become committed to using story as the means of doing so. It's sort of like, you know, the power of fiction over nonfiction. You know, when you draw somebody into your tale... You can make all the points that a nonfiction piece would be making, but it's within the context of a story or a theater piece or a film where people enjoy the narrative and go, they relate to the characters, and they go, oh my, oh my. You know what I mean? They're emotionally drawn in. I think that has a huge amount of validity as well, I should say. 
Right, right. Well, uh, there are even some uh, uh, global warming novels, you know, uh, about uh, yes. uh, the future Earth. So I think art, you know, it definitely has yeah. a big role to play because just the facts sometimes don't really move people the way one would hope, you know. That's right, exactly. Here, look at my chart. Look at my nice new pie chart. Destroying his his, uh, profession there. No, I mean, you know, journalism and and science and so on, they have their role, but but also we need artists. We need need everybody to be, you know. Talking about this stuff. <laughs> when was the last time you? When was the last time you took a statistician out to dinner? Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know any statisticians. Do you, Mitchell? <laughs> no, you actually don't. <laughs> I probably do somewhere in there, but uh, I think I've kind of blanked out. You know. <laughs> no. So the point about stories is very important, and that kind of brings back something that Paul Hawkins said in an interview I did with him recently that I very much appreciated. It's very powerful, and I've been quoting this ever since, which is, is global something happening to us, or is it something happening for us? And that little preposition makes a world of difference. It brings us from, we're victims, to, wow, maybe this is our opportunity, our golden opportunity to wake up and really smell the coffee or the green tea or the matcha and get into action, you know? Right. And, uh, oh, my. Everybody uh, quotes, you know, the Chinese character for uh, for emer- emergency or crisis right. is the yeah. same as the character for, for opportunity. opportunity. Exactly. So uh, let's hope that we pick up on this opportunity and and you know i mean a lot of people are really dispirited about the political direction of this country ourselves included i i would say but uh but the fact remains that maybe this this kind of this is what's necessary to wake us up you know it's like uh who's to say that we don't need this kind of shock treatment you know this wrecking ball in the white house that's right. Who's to say that we don't? Uh, me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, it brings us back to, you know, some various aspects of the human psyche, Richard. Uh, the idea in ancient Greek mythology of Prometheus and Epimetheus. And Prometheus was means forethought. And epimetheus means afterthought. So we have a uh, uh, prologue and we have an afterword, if you will, right? And these, of course, are distinct archetypes. When I was going to Bard College many moons ago, uh, my thesis, uh, which was sort of my book, uh, to graduate was all about uh, Prometheus and the, uh, the gift of fire as the awakening of consciousness and conscience by the way. Not enough people talk about conscience being awakened. And uh, my old teacher, Mr. George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, talked a lot about awakening conscience. Everybody's more interested in what have you. Anyway, uh, of course, the conscience involves the awakening of the heart 
and the heart's connection to all life and sentient beings. So, um, with that, you know, kind of said, we're in a position of either using our reflective mind to uh, foresee what will happen if we do not take certain steps and what we can foresee if we take other steps. But instead, we're always sort of leading from behind, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, look what we did to the waterways. They're undrinkable. How did that happen? Oh, I don't know. You know, Epimetheus is not considered the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> Prometheus was, <laughs> no pun intended, on fire. So I think we want to model ourselves a little bit more after that not to mention the gadfly that was constantly nudging him so he's really wakeful and paying strict, disciplined attention, you know. Um, on that note, well, honestly, we're, we're, we're getting bring we're getting up. some wake up we're getting some wake up calls now, so let's just let's hope it wakes us, huh? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I want to dive into a little of what you think about that. Uh, but I want to bring something else up, if I may, which is just kind of a – since we're so interested in solutions, and you've mentioned a few of them, and I've mentioned a few of them, I want to just turn attention for a moment to uh, Paul Hawkins' uh, most recent book called Drawdown, the most comprehensive uh, 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 manual for reversing global warming. Uh, the very powerful title there um and basically he says there are two things that we can do it's not that complicated at this moment in this way one is we can stop producing the uh greenhouse gases or at least vastly vastly reduce them on one hand and the other is as you were saying earlier sequester them i.e. the ones that are already in our atmosphere, capture them, bury them, transmute them, right? So we've got these two right. actions. So this is what he says, Richard. In his book, he hierarchizes, prioritizes about 80 to 100 of them. And these were the result of years of research by some 200 uh, scientists of different sorts, uh, mainly environmental, as you'd imagine, across the world from every single culture. Probably could be, I'm guessing right now, but I think it's from at least 80 different countries. So it's a very wide swath of, of data that has been collated over time and distilled into these. And this is what we're looking at. Number one is refrigerant management. That accounts for 89.74 of the total atmospheric CO2 in our world. 89.7, that's crazy. If we manage it, that is how much we can change the whole game from refrigerant management, so, you know, the Freon and the refrigerant systems themselves and the way we dispose of them and the way we deal with the, the chemistry of them, all of that. The next 
item that we can utilize is interestingly not solar. It's wind turbines onshore, not offshore. Onshore wind turbines is number two. Reduced what's food a wind, waste. What's a, what's a wind turbine? A wind turbine. Oh, wind, wind turbine. Oh, okay. So, sorry, wind turbine, yes. Ah, I got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wind I was turbines. Yeah. speaking too Absolutely. windily. My, my apology. Um, number three is reduced food waste. There is some remarkable number, percentage of food that is purely just wasted every single day from every single source, from restaurants to silos. They're just wasted. The next one, number four, is a plant-rich diet. Another is reforestation, like you were referring to before, creating new tropical forests by, didn't mention the artificial trees, but ordinary real trees. The next one, I'm just going to do a few of them, is educating girls. When girls get educated, especially in developing countries, their interest in having uh, children and getting married goes from age, you know, whatever, 14, 15, 16, to 24, 26, 28, and 30. And then the number of children they decide to have goes from 6 to 5 to 4 to 3 to 2 or 1. So these are all the next one is family planning. And number 8, interestingly, is solar farms and nine being silvopasture, which has to do with the way animals roam and the way they pound on, down on the ground and are actually deeply involved in sequestration and the exchange of chemicals between their bodies and their hoofs and the earth, which helps to create greater sequestration. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, we we know that uh, that our habit of meat eating, eating for example, is uh, a major source of uh, of yeah uh, in, inefficiency and and uh, global warming. Yeah. But uh, it's, commercial it's much, much more efficient need to, to be made, but a commercial agriculture um, and commercial, you know cattle industry, uh, hog industry, poultry industry are where the real menace is, and the menace is huge. It's it's kind of incalculable. When you right. deal with uh, family farms and the like where you have a different type of behavior, uh, it seems like it actually has a a good effect, and that doesn't get discussed much. Right. I oh, mean, I was. Uh, you, you mentioned in the beginning that I I did some reporting from Brazil. So the, one of the major causes of deforestation in Brazil. Well, there there's two, and one is soybeans, and the other is is cattle yes. raising. So yes. when you fly over the Amazon, you notice that the whole southern flank of what used to be the Amazon rainforest has been deforested. I mean, millions and millions of acres are just checkerboard now of like a little bit of forest left and, and mainly soy uh, soy farms. So what are soy farms? What, why are we growing all this soy? Well, to feed cows. <laughs> That's the reason. Exactly. And, and uh, exactly. cow protein is one of the least efficient ways of of uh of 
you know, uh, providing human protein. beings, providing yeah. protein for human beings. So, uh, water so you know, Paul Hawkins' pound. suggestion yeah. about eating more vegetables, well, that's something all of us can do, you know. Exactly, exactly true. So there... So you're you're bringing up a very valuable point. There's on one hand we've got the the micro level of our own lifestyle choices that if they are mediated and moderated and balanced then uh we can individually change the course of our future because if there is less mediating let's be realistic, you know, if there's less, considerably less, meat, poultry, hog eating, then the demand for it will go down. The interest in that business will decrease. The profitability will change. And people will decide to go into making solar panels instead. No, I don't know what they'll do. But (laughs) this is the way we personally can make a difference. And then on the macro level, we have, as you keep saying, um, making a very valid point about a political will and government investment. And I'm big on the social entrepreneurship role of of uh, using, you know, the capital incentives for building a better world, you know, and it can be done in, and it's being done. I mean, it's massive what you're saying is going on in China. Uh, They're not doing this as a charity, Um, but they're making a difference tremendously. In the um, exactly, and I I think economies, you know, it's, it's not that. It's not that government and the private sector industry like are, are separate here. It, the government right now, the U.S. government, is giving tremendous tax uh, relief to the, for the production of uh, fossil fuels. Exactly. I mean, that's crazy. What could be crazier? So, I mean, just withdrawing those tax incentives for producing fossil fuels would be a huge boon to the alternative energy field, right? So oh. I think government has to play a role and and the private sector is ready to take up the you know, take up the fight. But it needs it needs at least for us to stop subsidizing uh things that are you know, so damaging to the planet. So true, so true. You know, I, I always have a, a laugh when people criticize some of the progressives, say, in the Democratic Party, and they're not nearly as progressive as I think they should be. But that's a different conversation. Uh, and they use the word, demo, the phrase, democratic socialism, like it's some kind of bad thing. And I say, wait a minute, wait, hold your horses. This government has been socialist probably from its inception. And over the last hundred years, subsidizing the oil industry and big pharma and agriculture and farming, and need I go on, logging, etc. 
those are socialist measures, my capitalist friends. That's <laughs> socialism, man. But we're we're giving our hard-earned tax dollars to very wealthy corporations instead of, let's say, the social good, you know, the commons, <laughs> the social welfare, you know, the way the Constitution uh, kind of uh, talks about, right? Uh, instead, right. we're paying farmers for not. I love this one. We pay farmers to not grow certain things. I remember there was a comedian. I don't know if it was George Carlin or someone, Richard, who said, "You know what? I'd love to be one of those farmers and get paid. I'll not grow soybeans. No problem." <laughs> well, I think we've solved the problems of the world, Mitchell. Uh, I hope they were listening in Washington. Do you think? Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, we're gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna. Email this, the link to this podcast, Richard Schiffman, to our White House because they need to hear it, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly, right, right. They need to hear <laughs> and, it. and every member and, of Congress, right? <laughs> exactly, and the Senate exactly. And, Just what came yeah. to me today was EPA plans to allow unlimited dumping of fracking wastewater in the Gulf of Mexico. This is what has happened to our EPA under Trump. You know, you remember when the EPA got formed, it was during the Nixon era. The Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act were all Republican conservative uh, measures and values. And so was the formation of the EPA itself. So these guys, these jokers call themselves Republicans and conservatives, and they're anything but that. They're renegades. They're dangerous, on the loose, unhinged people who are commandeering our government, and they're run simply by corporations. Here's another uh, article. Trump's EPA consistently benefits corporate profits over consumer health. Just as you were saying about, you know, the uh, fossil fuel industry. So, Richard, last thoughts about what we can do? Oh, my. Well, uh, uh, lingering notions of yeah. what you want us to think about. <laughs> well, I, I, I think just educate. We should all educate ourselves on these issues and, uh, Speak about them as we're speaking today, you know, with yes. family and friends, and, uh, and and vote the bums out, you know. I mean, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and before you vote them out, impeach them all. Impeach them all. <laughs> Trump, Ryan, McConnell, Whitaker. Oh, go get them, boys. Go get them. <laughs> No, really, I I consider them actually uh, dangerous. They're literally dangerous and endangering the life of others. They are responsible, or should say co-responsible, for the horrors happening in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in Iraq to this day. And the money is in war, and they won't turn it around. The biggest polluter on the planet is the U.S. military. 
And it's just, it's all interconnected, as I was saying at the top of the show, Richard. And we need a systemic solution because we see that it's a systemic problem. Well, um, your, your words to God's ears, they say. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I, I'll tell I think, you. Uh, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, right-minded people are eventually going to prevail. They say the truth prevails in the end. So let's keep they our do. fingers crossed and and you know hold our breaths for the next couple of years. And that's right. And we're, we'll we'll surface at the end of it. And we'll, let's get we'll through get it. We'll get in gear exactly. again. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Richard Schiffman, I want to just thank you again for being a guest on the show today and for your wonderful and powerful uh, reportage through all of your news media that you have access to and that ask you to write for them, that it's getting read, your work is making a difference in people's lives, and thank you for it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, you too. Thanks, Mitchell. Thanks for all your work. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You got it. Thanks for joining. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Richard Schiffman, environmental journalist at large, as I was saying before. He writes for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Salon, the Christian Science Monaster, Huffington Post. He's done uh, shows on uh, NPR and Christian Monitor Radio as well. He's been a longtime friend of A Better World and mine, and uh, it's been a pleasure to have him on discussing these matters of such deep importance. I don't know how to put it. I mean, folks, we're all in this together, as Jesse Jackson said. We may have all taken different boats here, but we're all in the same boat now, and it is sinking. It sprang a leak. And, uh, yeah, you know, on one hand, we're in trouble and we can despair or we can say, oh, when the when it's tough, the tough get going. And that's just who we are and what we have to do. And there are many ways the whole consumerist model is so at base of the problems we have because there is this hideous ambition to pay less for everything. And if you remember Annie Leonard's The Story of Stuff, you can see how everyone in different ways is contributing to this idea of cheaper, faster, bigger, uh, and... It's consumerism as a religion uh, that is dominating our culture. And it's not that we don't need to consume some. Well, of course we do. And there's a certain joy in some consumption. That's not the issue. The issue is the obsession with consumption and the drive toward it and this sickness called shopping and oh my god it's just it's a 
horror show. We just don't need probably about 80% of what we buy. I don't know that number statistically because I haven't gone to dinner with a statistician. No, uh, I don't know that that is exact by any means, but I would wager that of what we need, it's probably approximately 20 or 25% of what it is we actually purchase. Uh, and so what of that other 70 or 75 or so percent? And if we didn't buy it and we were more uh, simple and uh, modest and frugal planned, and just had our minds on other things than buying, uh, I'll tell you, I know the things that attract me. Um, really quality nutrients, things that help to support health and wellness and well-being, good uh, sneakers for playing uh, sports, you know, tennis and battle tennis and running. Um, uh, my bikes for the past 30 years have been bought at flea markets for between 100 and 200 dollars. And I'm oh I have I don't think I've ever ever bought a new car. I've always bought secondhand cars, so they're used. I mean, look, we need so little. We just need so little. And if we have some flourishes on top of what we need, God bless. But that would not lead to an obsession of consumerism the way we have it in the United States of America, less so in other countries, but some are interested in catching up because there is this identification with appearance over everything else. Now, do I think people should look good? Yeah, why not? That's fun, but it actually doesn't cost a whole lot of money to do so. It just doesn't. And it doesn't mean someone has to have two closetfuls of clothing to look good. It just doesn't mean it. So we have to kind of unfasten ourselves from the ordinary, conventionally programmed ideas of consumerism and let ourselves just be free humans, sovereign in our thinking and our reflection. The way things were when life was simpler. Man in nature, man on the mountain and swimming in the lake and beholding the vastness of the ocean, right? Wow, you could be wearing a loincloth, man, and look really good. <laughs> so, anyway, no one can tell me that we need to consume like we do because we don't. And uh, my opinion, and I'll, I'll stick with it. And I do believe that if we change these and eating habits, um, we can all individually contribute a lot to the shifting atmosphere towards sequestration. Now, Richard mentioned at the top of the show, and we'll be winding down momentarily, that I am doing Through a Better World a lot, and I am surely endeavoring to through the um, uh, the uh, raising of capital for different technologies that could make a whirlwind of difference, <laughs> truly, such as 
wind technology that could change the price of a kilowatt hour from six to 50 cents, depending on what part of the world you're in, to a penny, literally. And all I need is another $5 million to do so. No, I don't need that. Uh, but the company in question does. And a uh, prototype is already being built. Siemens has already analyzed it and come up with a green thumbs up like efficiency beyond anything else out there. And these are destined for wind farms on a commercial utility level as well as, you know, in uh, you could say municipal levels across the planet and also for individual homes. We've got that prototype almost completed. So uh, wind, it ends up, is uh, actually depending on geography, and that really does need to be stated, uh, is generally speaking more efficient than solar. And it's not an either or. I consider it a both and, i.e., uh, have one and the other. One is capturing the wind, the other the sun. There is underway work to capture uh, solar even at nighttime. It's not around the corner just yet, but it's being worked on. And I know some of the uh, folks involved in that. So it is fantastic what is going on. I feel honored um, to know some of the people that are involved in such wonderful and noble enterprises. I am working in many cases side by side, shoulder by shoulder with them. Uh, we do already have uh, wind turbines for the home. Needless to say, there's also uh, wave technology. There's hydrokinetic, uh, which involves that. There is geothermal. I mean, the Earth herself, the photons are everywhere. And the work of Hazel Henderson, God bless her, has done so much to advance the understanding of the use of photons for uh, mobilizing and energizing our economies and our societies. And it's just, it's nothing short of criminal that we have not stepped up to this, that rational thinking has not guided our actions instead of the emotional attachment to this idea of more, more money, that usually means, and more power and more control and more keeping the things the way they are because we own them and we control them and we can. Uh-uh. That's not rational. Rational says... Wow, we're getting smarter. Our technologies and our systems need to change. Our infrastructure needs to change along with our rational understanding of what will preserve, conserve, and sustain our lives and the lives of others, other sentient beings. That's rational. That's thoughtful. And falling short of that, because we happen to have coal mines and jobs in coal, we should keep them even in the face of photons. 
I say, what are you, mad? You've got to be mad. So these poor coal miners, generation after generation, are getting black lung and dying early, and the kids don't have fathers. I mean, why again? Can you please explain why we have to do that? Because we're used to it? Because my daddy did it? I don't think so. Wouldn't your daddy really like to see you have a better life? Well, this one, one of numerous technologies that uh, a better world has access to through different means and different collaborations is this wind technology which can actually be placed inside of a smokestack that has been traditionally used by coal burners and I like to describe it as swords into plowshares. We go from burning coal into generating electricity through wind. And even now, the EPA standards would have a coal smokestack cost oh, somewhere between 1.4 and 2.3 or so million dollars for a retrofit with scrubbers to match even the somewhat eviscerated standards of the EPA, whereas for approximately $600,000, we can put one of our wind turbines into the stack and create a tunnel and generate electricity cleanly through wind. (laughs) Are you serious, man? I am. I'm very serious. That's what can happen, and I'll be having uh, some of the principles, if not the inventor, on in relatively short order to discuss this at greater length. But that's just one. Then A Better World works with a solar company, just beautiful guys, who are totally committed to bringing solar everywhere. And if you, as a listener happen to own a company uh, or stores of relatively large size, uh, then please do let me know if you're interested in solarizing because these guys can come and do an analysis that will blow your socks off to show you the economic benefit as well as the energy benefit of going solar and laws are changing too in the United States so this year and next we still have the maximum tax credit but as of the end of December 2019 they go away they go from 32% I should say down to I think it's 26% then down to 22% the following year and then down to 11 or 10% And then it's goodbye, Charlie. So if anyone is interested in solarizing, now is the time. One has to have their uh, solar uh, project underway up through a certain phase to qualify for the credits uh, this year, which is, you know, virtually gone, and into next. So those are two major things. We are dealing with a water technology that also generates electricity. I mean, the 
breakthroughs technologically are extraordinary, my friends. I'm in awe of some of the minds, the creative genius that have been doing these types of developments and activities and innovations for years now. This one will clean up even fracked water. And uh, through the process of cleaning, the process, uh, of course, every process generates some heat. It's the nature of things. And that heat can be um, annexed to hydrogen and it becomes a water purification source of the highest caliber and an energy source of amazing volume. So in one action, get both. And as far as I recall, the entire system is financeable. So you're not even out of pocket any money if you are running a municipality or anything of that dimension or a large corporation or you are dumping into the Gulf of Mexico or into any river or lake or ocean or simply want to clean up your area. Um, I plan to speak to the municipality of New York City about their watersheds and cleaning up the water way better and getting the chlorine and the fluoride out of that water. So these are the kinds of things that can happen and it needs, as Richard Shipman was saying, a political will to do so and an energized will to do so. And uh, that is just one small fraction of what is possible and what it is we here at A Better World have going. So with that said, I want to just say thanks for joining me today on A Better World Radio. We so appreciate your attention. We know that there are so many things to listen to these days. And uh, so those of you who choose to listen here and gather this information and this God willing inspiration uh, is so appreciated by me. So if you would, no matter where you may be from, make sure to shoot me an email at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's my initials, mjr at abetterworld.net. And visit our website, get in our newsletter at abetterworld.tv. If you want any of uh, my coaching services, executive communication, stress management, biofeedback, uh, business consulting, make sure to visit us at mitchellrabin.com, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N, as in Arabin, dot com. Or again, shoot me an email uh, making reference to that in the um, subject line. All right, so that's all for tonight. Uh, thanks so much for joining. Remember that we are a nonprofit, 501c3. We have DVDs for sale uh, through our Amazon store at abetterworld.tv. Just click on store and you'll come up with some amazing interviews that have been around. Some are classic, some are new on all subjects, holistic thinking, systemic thinking, thinking from the heart you'll enjoy. Thanks again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Mm-hmm.